Good morning. I'd like to start with God's Word, Romans 15, 4, and for whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Take just a moment and look at, look at people around you and welcome them this morning. Say hi. Whether it's behind you, in front of you, welcome them as Christ has welcomed us. And I want to welcome all of those that aren't here personally today but are watching online. We are blessed. We are glad and thankful that you are with us here today. We love you. And we cherish you. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person that is here this morning. I thank you for their presence. I thank you for your presence as you are always with us. You have started a beautiful and wonderful day for us. And as we gather together and worship in one accord, Father, may we humbly see your face working here today. Lord, may we encourage each other as you encourage us through Scripture. I want to lift up the men's and women's ministry as they gather together in different groups, Father, I pray for encouragement. I pray for love, unity, the gaining of knowledge and wisdom, that they may share that with others, that they may encourage others in their walk. I thank you for our children's ministry, the volunteers, the people that have put forth the time to teach our little ones that are so, so precious, not only to us, but to Christ. Father, I thank you for our youth ministry, those teenagers. Father, they're entering into a world that is so difficult with peer pressure, with so many things that are, can steer you the wrong way. But I thank you for those volunteers. I thank you for AJ as they... As they put forth time into our teenagers, that they could become wonderful, God-loving adults, that they could spread the word and be a difference in this world. Father, I thank you for the music ministry, the worship team, 
Father, we thank you so much for what they give us. They pour out their hearts that we may share with them in a glorious time of worship. And I thank you for the missions ministry. Father, we lift up all missions, whether it's here in the United States, whether it's abroad. Father, protect them. Allow them to work for your kingdom, Father, sharing the word throughout the world, throughout our country. We thank you for the people on our missionary team, Father, the time they put in, the preparations. We thank you for all of them. We thank you for the coffee ministry, Father, the little time that these women put out to greet us in the morning. We thank you so much for that. And there's many more, Father, but Father, we just pray that what we do here is an honor to you, Father. Lord, I, I want to pray for so many of our senior adults that cannot be here this morning because of illnesses, injuries, Father, circumstances that they have no control over. But Father, may we lift them up. May we continue to reach out to them. May we continue to lift them up in prayer, never giving up. Prayer works, Father. You, you have gifted us many, many times with miracles. But Father, as we prepare this morning to gain knowledge, to grow deeper in your word, I, I ask you to anoint Tim as he brings the word. Father, help us in our hearts and our minds to understand your word. We thank you for this day. We thank you for allowing us to come together as brothers and sisters to worship together to honor you. In Jesus' precious, precious name, amen. Good morning, and thank you for being here with us for worship. Let's have the kids be dismissed to their ministry time upstairs. And parents, you can pick them up at the end of the service upstairs. Um, as we <clears throat> look at what Christ is doing in our church, um, today's an important day where we will have our um, semi-annual congregational meeting, and that will be this evening at 5.30. It will start with the chili cook-off, so if any of you have a pot of chili to enter in that competition, we will have a prize uh, for the winner. Bring that, and uh, that will start at 5.30. We'll eat chili, we'll have dinner with the chili, and we'll have cornbread and um, you know crackers and chips and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but that's tonight at 5.30. And after dinner, um, we will then have our ministry reports from a number of our ministry leaders, including our key staff and some elders, and we'll have a financial update. All of those things that are so important to the, the ministry of the church and the ongoing ministry of the church that we just want to inform you of, keep you up to date with some of the most significant things going on around you in the ministry of the church uh, then in just a few weeks, uh, we have our missions conference the weekend of March 16th and 17th. Again, we want to remind you of that and, and encourage you to save those dates. And um, then the Easter choir, Easter is the end of March, March the 31st. And 
our Easter choir will start practicing the first Wednesday in March, March the 6th. So talk to Jason if you're interested in that and haven't already signed up to be a part of that important uh, aspect of our worship, our co corporate worship together. I'd invite you now to turn to Hebrews chapter 6, and uh, we'll only be in five verses this morning. It's a relatively short passage, but an important and a difficult passage in a lot of ways, and I hope you have your own copy of the scriptures in front of you. Um, in 2010, um, Jess and I moved to Dalton, had the opportunity to serve, was invited by the leadership of Fellowship Bible Church to serve as the youth and family pastor here. And um, was young at the time, 24 years old, I guess, when we moved here and started serving here at this church. Learned a lot. It's not an exaggeration to say Jess and I have grown up here. A lot of you have seen that in real time. If you rewind to 2010, I was um, at one of my first sort of youth pool parties at a family's house in the church. And I remember it for two significant reasons. One has everything to do with this passage. One has nothing to do with this passage, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, you see, at the time, our pastor was, um, our, our, the pastor that I served under, Jim Suddeth, our previous senior pastor here, was going through the book of Hebrews in a series. And um, I remember that, that pool party at this family's house for two reasons, because number one, I remember we sat down to do some prayer time or devotion or something that I was leading, and it was students and parents, and we were sort of at the side of the pool, and somebody hands me one of those like folding like camp chairs that you know the ones you put in a bag and you unfold it and you put it out somebody puts it to me and I go and I was like all right everybody let's let's have uh, let me have your attention we're going to start we're going to open up the bible study now and I go to sit down and the chair shatters under me completely shatters and I remember a couple of the boys looking at me like dude what'd you do like uh, here I am in this serious moment as this kid, to be honest with you, trying to um, not only speak to the new students I've been given responsibility for, but more parents than typical, and in this serious moment, here I am at poolside completely shattering a chair. That's my first memory of embarrassment from that um, pool party. The second, though, was more lasting and actually has to do with what we're talking about today. Um, at that time, Jim was preaching through Hebrews 6, and one of our elders who's also a parent of uh, one of the students in the ministry, uh, came up to me and said, okay, so we're almost to Hebrews 6. So there's like three or four dads around, including an elder and some other men that are engaged in the church that are all lots older than me. And he says, so what's your interpretation of Hebrews 6, 4, and those that cannot be restored to repentance? And I was like, excuse me? He said, no, 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 like, Jim's preaching it next week, so I want to know, like, I'm curious to what he's going to say, and the other dads are sort of like, yeah, well, maybe he'll say this, or yeah, maybe he'll say that, and, and they're like, so, Tim, Tim, what do you think? And I was like, I'm just glad I'm not preaching. And they were like, good enough for now. Um, as in, like, you, someday you're going to need an answer to that question. So here we are, 14 years later, I finally am going to answer that question for you. Um, Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, the passage that stumped me as a 24-year-old, and I was so grateful I didn't have to be the one to present it to the congregation, but a passage that, frankly, sometimes we just get in our own heads. As Christians, as, as a church, 
Sometimes we, we make things a little bit harder than they are in the way we pick out parts of the Scripture and interpret a verse or two at a time without just looking at the whole book and understanding that the whole book is meant to together present a unified witness of, of who God is. And, and the whole book is, is different in a sense that there's different types of literature. There's, there's so many different human authors. It's written over the course of multiple generations and centuries. And, and yet, the picture that comes out of the book is a unified story, a unified picture of God. And yet, a unified picture of God that's given to us progressively. Not because God changes and God makes progress, but because we are given different details as we go through the book. And as the Israelites and then the early church went through their lives and their histories of relationship with God, God revealed himself more and more. Not because he changed, not because he was different at the beginning than he was at the end, but because he gave the people what they needed to know for what he had asked of them in that season of time, in that generation, in that, um, uh, in that season of revelation. So that's why you see these things that feel like some contradictions sometimes, where it seems like the God of the Old Testament seems different than the God of the New Testament in some ways. It seems like the God of the Old Testament worked differently with Israel than with other people, but it seems like the God of the New Testament really cares about every way, everybody in a way that it didn't, you didn't get that sense in the Old Testament. But there are answers and explanations for all of those that sometimes are just simply explained by taking the book as a whole. And, and not trying to pit verses against each other, not trying to come up with, with difficult doctrines to discuss and, and argue with other Christians about, but just trying to earnestly, humbly, figure out who it is, this God that has loved us and has presented himself to us in human form, in the person of Jesus, and via a written story of the Bible. And so when we unpack a difficult passage like Hebrews 6, we keep in mind not just what Hebrews 6 says, but we keep in mind what the whole book says, what this rather library of books says. Because there's 66 books in here. And, and so to call it even a unified book is, is true because it's unified, and yet can be misleading because we almost do a disservice to the differences in the different types of literature and the different ways in which the books are written. But if we see this as a library of books telling a unified story of Jesus and how we live in relationship to Jesus, we get closer to this understanding of these difficult doctrines and these divisive passages. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8, is a passage that has stumped people and caused lots of division and lots of argument over church history. We are not going to come up with new ideas today that those throughout church history that have been arguing about, just it never occurred to them. So we need to keep that humbly in mind, that we're not smarter than the previous 2,000 years of pastors and teachers and church members, believers in Christ, who have thought and reflected on these passages. But yet, if we come to the passage humbly, I think we'll see a better explanation and reasonable application. Because more than anything, our priority in coming to the Scriptures and opening up a difficult passage and, and trying to understand the difficult passage, the goal is not to win a debate, to come to the right decision, 
to be right while somebody else is wrong. The goal is not even right, is not even to have the right answer. The goal is for the right answer to lead us into a deeper relationship with Jesus, to lead us into deeper obedience, to lead us into a deeper connection with our Father. And so just this head knowledge that says, I've found the right answer, if it doesn't move us to love for Christ, obedience for Christ, a, a, a Christian life that is put into practice, then we got to talk about chapter 5 again. Because back in chapter 5, where we were last week, we saw that those that just had an informational relationship with the Word of God and the truth of God, they were considered to be those that were eating like infants, those that were still relying on breast milk instead of solid food. And we don't want to be that. We're not here for information only. We're here so that the information we learn about God transforms us more and more into deeper dependence and deeper relationship with Him. So in light of that, we'll open up Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, and we'll read this passage, and hopefully now you'll see, if you don't know what this passage is about, if you didn't read ahead, no idea what I'm talking about, I think you'll start to see it. I, let me give the context, because the slide is up there. This is helpful. At the end of chapter 5, we talked about the challenge of infancy. And then last week, we, we went 5, 11 through 14, the challenge of spiritual infancy, the, the call to growth in 6, 1 through 3, and this is the crisis of apostasy. Apostasy being those that either are true believers or apparent believers that walk away, that reject Christ and his salvation. That's the crisis that we're talking about today. Verse 4. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worse, worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The first phrase in this passage, it is impossible. And I can tell you what that means, not because I looked up the Greek, but because it means what it means. Impossible means impossible. And if you want to go into the Greek word for impossible, we can, but I can tell you it just means impossible. So when we start there and say it's impossible for whatever he says next, and we have to skip through some phrases to understand what is actually impossible because he has some phrases that describe the people he's talking about. So verse 4, it is impossible, and then we'll skip down to verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Okay, So it is impossible for some people who fall away to be restored to repentance. Now in the middle, in verses 4, 5, and 6, you have all of these qualifications of who these people are. But here's the problem that is really central and really simple. According to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, or 6, 4 through 6, there are some people who are impossible to restore to repentance. That's what it says. 
and any interpretation of this passage is going to have to deal with that really strong and significant issue. And so today, here's, here's what we'll do. Before we go too deep into what these different phrases mean and the people we're identifying them, I'm going to give you three positions that are just broad interpretations of who these people are that the passage is describing. I'm going to give you three options up front. I'm going to tell you what I think is the best option. And then we're going to go through the passage in light of what I think is the best option. And we'll see how that then leads us into some real application and connection with Jesus. That, that's the plan for today. Now, I'll tell you, um, I've referenced it a few times. There are some issues in Hebrews that I think need some more background discussion. So what I've done this time around is I've decided that once every other week, I'm going to create some extra videos that will go on YouTube to explain some background issues. And I'm going to do one of those this week on this passage. Because the time that I'm going to give you in just a few minutes into these three interpretations, these three possible solutions, is probably, not going, is probably going to be more than enough for some of you and probably going to be not enough for some of you. And that's okay. Because we study the Scripture at different levels and we ask different questions of Scripture. And so I want to try to serve as many people as possible. So this morning, we'll go through the three main possibilities. And then this week, I'll give you kind of a YouTube background video that gives you six possibilities and a little bit more detail into each. But these are the three most popular interpretations of this passage, and that being, who are these people who were once enlightened and then fall away and are impossible to restore to repentance? Number one, they are true Christians who fall away. Truly saved, truly believers in the gospel who are saved and transformed and have repented, and then at some point after being a Christian, they reject and they lose their salvation. The second interpretation is that this is a hypothetical situation. That the, the author of Hebrews, that the if is doing a lot of work in this passage. Because, that's what he says, if people were to have all of these things happened, if they were once enlightened, if they've tasted the heavenly gift, if they shared in the spirit, all of those things. There's one interpretation that says, this is hypothetical. These people don't actually exist, but the author of Hebrews is making a point that should still warn us and lead us to take great care in our obedience to Jesus and in our, our relationship to Christ. Because, boy, if it wasn't just hypothetical, if it was real, it'd be really scary. And the third interpretation is that these are apparent Christians that look like Christians in, in every outside way. And yet... We're not true Christians, and they fall away because, what John says, they were never truly um, real Christians. They were never truly a part of the way of Jesus. Those are the three interpretations. I'll go through those in, in that order and just make a few comments on it. Um, this is one of the key passages in the New Testament for those that believe that first view, that say that, that you can be saved and then fall away or lose your salvation and, and they would believe then, they would interpret this passage to say, this is someone who is genuinely converted and that has lost their salvation. So they received the gospel, believed the gospel, earnestly believed the gospel, perhaps bore some fruit. They tasted the heavenly gift, as this passage says. They experienced the Spirit of God in some way. They were really true believers. And when you read the language, in fairness, when you read the language of this passage, those who have been enlightened, in verse 4, those who tasted the heavenly gift, in verse 4, shared in the Holy Spirit, verse 4, 
and verse 5, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, those descriptions really start to feel like this is a believer. This is, if somebody is shared in the Holy Spirit, somebody has been enlightened by the truth of God, somebody has seen the power of the age to come, that means the power of the heavenly kingdom, the power of the eternal kingdom. Somebody has witnessed that power. So it does sound like a, a description of somebody who's real. And yet, though they were once Christians, they lose it. Now, one of the issues is with, with those with, with this position um, that this passage becomes a little bit of a difficulty even for them. Is those that do believe you can be saved and then because of your disobedience or disbelief you lose your salvation, they still would believe you can get it back. But if we take this passage to say these are true believers that were real believers and then they fell away, they can't be restored to repentance. And so, so there's a problem that leads to the logical progression of that passage to why I don't think it's a favorable interpretation because of these four verses. Now, but, but like I said, things get easier as we start to look at the whole of Scripture. Because it, like, I don't think this is the best interpretation of these four verses, but it gets even worse when you start to look at the whole of Scripture. And you start to say, how does Scripture interpret Scripture? One of the basic principles all of you need to know as you open your Bible and read the Bible on your own, every Christian needs to understand that the best interpretive tool you have in reading and understanding the Bible is the rest of the Bible. And so when you get hard passages that are unclear, one of the principles that, that any Bible teacher will tell you in trying to learn how to study the Bible, use what is clear in Scripture to interpret what is unclear. And we don't just do that in Scripture, we do that just in life. If you receive instructions in a classroom or in a workplace, and, and, and it seems like, well, some of what my teacher said is confusing, you use what you understood the teacher to say, what made sense and was very clear, to help you interpret what was unclear in that statement. And so it is with Scripture. When we have things in Scripture that are very clear, then we come to the ones that seem to be unclear, and we're not sure which way to go with them. We interpret those difficult ones in light of the easier ones. Romans 8.38, for example, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul certainly believes in Romans 8, 38 and 39, nothing can take someone who is loved by God and at home in salvation in the love of God and pull them out of that. Jesus himself says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And if we were to interpret this passage to say, these are true Christians who have fallen away from their salvation, what we are saying is they've jumped out of the Father's hand. That they have snatched themselves out of the Father's hand. Because they were once safe and secure in the Father's hand, protected for eternal salvation, and then their actions, their sin, their disbelief, their whatever, plucks them out of the Father's hand. 
So I don't think this is a, the right interpretation, number one, because I don't think it really squares with Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. And number two, because I think the rest of Scripture, in clear ways, uh, tells us something other than that, what that conclusion would lead us to. And we'll come back to that more. We're going to talk about all three of these positions a couple times. Uh, number two, just short, quickly, the hypothetical situation doesn't make sense to me. I'll be even more strong. I want to be a little bit sympathetic to point one. Hypothetical doesn't make sense because there's not really a clear understanding as to why the author of Hebrews would give us a hypothetical that's not reality. Why such a harsh and strong warning about something that could not potentially affect anybody in his readership? Why are you so worried about warning me about something that will never happen? That, is, that doesn't make sense. You think about, in what instance would you give a warning to somebody that you love? You wouldn't give a warning to somebody that you love with, without real implications. Think about that. Think about what that would do to a child. Think about if you, if you went to a child and you had more information and understanding than they did and say, don't, don't run in the rain. And, and, and the real answer is, well, if you run in the rain, you could slip and fall and you could get hurt. But what if you tell the child, if you run in the rain, you could slip and fall in a puddle and you could drown? That's hypothetical, right? That's not going to happen. And what would you do to that child? You would harm that child. That child would live in such fear and anxiety of what if this could happen? You can't do that. That would be cruel. And so is the author of Hebrews cruel in giving us this hypothetical situation that could never happen? Be careful in case this thing that could never happen actually could happen. That doesn't make any sense. It's not the way Scripture works in other ways, and it certainly doesn't make sense of this passage either. Warnings are warnings in Scripture. When, this, when the Spirit of God speaks through a child of God to give, to give a warning to somebody, it's real. It's practical. It's not a waste. Okay, number three. And I, you can already tell, this is, the fav, this is the interpretation I favor. Apparent Christians who fall away. This means that the description here is a description of, inf- of individuals who have been influenced by the gospel, given, given some level of acceptance to the gospel, believed it in their heads, been enlightened by the word of God. It means they've heard the word of God. They've been in a church. They've been around Christian circles. They've gotten really excited about it, and they, they look like they're there. They look like they're in. And everybody around them says, I really think this, li- this guy's legit. And then they fall away. And you say, well, well, I mean, is that really what... Look at these, this passage. Those that have once been enlightened, those that have shared in the Holy Spirit, those that have heard the power of the Word of God, those sort of things. Could anybody actually be like this? The best way, let me tell you, the best way to interpret this passage is with Scripture and with scriptural examples. And the number one example is Judas Iscariot, who in every way looked like a disciple. Literally, only Jesus knew, only Jesus knew that he wasn't a true disciple. Now we see in the Gospels that they figured out later that he was skimming money off the top as he was keeping the purse, but but they didn't know that at the time. In every way, Judas was an apparent true believer, true follower of Jesus. But in the end, he's not. He He is revealed to not be. And so, that, so if, the, if I'm right, and if the interpretation here is of those who are apparent Christians, who are in the church, look like Christians, but then fall away because they were never truly Christians, it's consistent with 1 John 2, where 1 John 2 warns of those that have gone out from us because they were never truly with us. 
And so there is a sense in which this is a consistent biblical warning. Jesus warns us about this in Matthew 7. There will be those who will say to me at the end of the age, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? And, and Jesus says, I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Matthew 7. Matthew 13 and Luke 8, the parable of the soils. Jesus says there will be some that will be like the, the seed that fell on the thorny soil or the rocky soil, and there will be growth. They will break ground, but they will eventually fall away. And so it's a consistent scriptural teaching and a consistent scriptural warning whether you look at the words of Jesus, the words of John in 1 John, or the words of the author of Hebrews here. The warning for us then is clear. You can look like a Christian and not be a Christian. It's a pretty scary warning. And it's not a hypothetical warning. It's a real warning. You can look in all outward ways like a Christian. And yet, in the end, the Lord will look at you and say, depart from me, I never knew you. This warning in this passage, I want to be clear, is not meant to discourage, but encourage. So let's give the author of Hebrews a little bit of benefit of the doubt here. He's not trying to beat us up by saying, you guys, you guys may look like Christians, but inwardly you're decaying. He's not trying to make you feel bad because you're struggling with a besetting sin. He's not trying to make you feel like you're lost because there's a struggle that you've been engaged with your whole Christian life and you're still trying to find victory over this battle that you have, this battle of discouragement, this battle of sin, this battle of anger, this battle of lust. You keep battling, you're discouraged. The author of Hebrews doesn't want you to now lack assurance of salvation because of that. He doesn't want you to now say, well, maybe I'm not truly saved because I'm still sinning. That's not the point here. The point is encouragement to those that are clearly, clearly living two lives. A Christian in outward form, but decaying on the inside. Those people need to be challenged and woken up. In the same way that the people at the end of the last chapter that should be able to teach others and, and learn deep truths, they're still just dealing with milk instead of solid food. It's a warning that is an encouragement. The goal here is not for anyone to leave discouraged. The goal here is for every single person to walk out of this room today more sure, more sure than when you walked in that Jesus has loved you and saved you. You have been born again by the Spirit of God and you are at peace in connection with Him and that is solid and secure for all eternity. That's my goal this morning. And I think that's the author of Hebrews' goal. His goal is clear as you go on from here, as we get into next, next week's passage. Next week's passage starts out with, hey, just so you know, I'm convinced of better things with you. That's what verse 9 says. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he's issuing the warning. We need to be, be aware people like this exist. This can happen. This is a real danger. And yet, he says, I'm convinced that I see fruit in your life, and therefore, you need not be in fear of it. So here's how we listen to this passage today. We listen with ears open, knowing that there are some, maybe in our midst, maybe in this room, maybe some of you, or some that we know that will name the name of Jesus, that will say the right things, but because in their life they haven't truly repented, surrendered, 
and their life is not demonstrating the fruit of repentance and surrender, that person is not saved. That's the warning of this passage. So we all need to wrestle with that. But, you know, I, I knew a believer once. We were talking about a struggle in their life. And they looked at me and said, I'm not like you. I'm not like you. And I, I don't believe in this once saved, always saved thing. So you have all this confidence and assurance that even when you mess up, Jesus loves you. But, he, but she said, I was taught I was taught that if I sin, if I'm disobedient, then I'm going to fall out of my salvation in Christ. And so that means every time I come into church, I have to fix that again. And I have to pray to receive Christ again. I have to repent again. And I have to gain my salvation back again. And I said, that is not what Jesus wants from us. Jesus does not want us to walk through life fearful and unsure as to our eternal state. Jesus wants us to walk boldly through life, courageously through life, confidently through life, knowing that if God is for me, what can man do to me? Those passages don't make sense if you never know if you're truly in Christ or not. You are either in Christ and God is for you and strongly on your behalf and fighting for you when you cannot fight for yourself or you can't live in boldness and you're just floating through life hoping to do your best, hoping you get it right on your, on your own, hoping that you don't die in a car accident where you've had this outburst of anger and sin and lost your salvation in a moment and have no assurance at the end. That's not what the New Testament is saying. That's not what our Lord and Savior wants of us. He wants bold, confidence, assurance, because the world out there is hard, and the enemy is roaring like a lion, and he is seeking to destroy those that don't have the confidence of the love of Christ firmly, firmly in ourselves and in our hearts. So this is the important truth. Those who are born again display evidence of a new life. And there are those that are not born again that can display some evidences. But you know, as I was reading through um, a sermon on this passage from another pastor, he told this story that happens to him often. He says, I hear with frequency, oh yes, so-and-so, they have no interest in the gospel. They never attend church. They never share their faith. They really don't have any interest in worship or gathering with other believers. But you know, isn't it a good thing we still believe in eternal security? As if all of those evidences of that person's life that they have no sharing in the church, no interest in the gospel, no interest in Bible study or worship or being around other Christians, at least they prayed that prayer when they were little. At least they walked the aisle when they were little. Because now we know. We know that they're truly believers. They're truly saved. And, and brothers and sisters, here's my problem on both sides of the aisle here. We cannot walk around with no assurance as the woman in my first story that had to pray to receive Christ every Sunday she gathered in worship, was desperately afraid that she would end her life without, without having assurance of salvation. Nor can we be the person that says, because I checked a box as a child, I'm good, I'm covered, and I get to live however I want. Neither is the New Testament view of salvation. Neither is helpful for, for Christian growth in the Christian life. And so we have to hold these truths in tension that those who are born again do display evidence of a new life, but it is not the new life that saves them. It is not works that saves anybody. But 
grace that is truly received, faith that is real, results in works of obedience, results in a new heart, a new mind, new desires and affections. 2 Timothy 2 says it like this, God's firm foundation stands. This is 2 Timothy 2.19. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So two things. The Lord knows, the, knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. What's Paul saying? He's saying that if you name the name of the Lord, depart from sin. And as you depart from sin, you prove that you name the name of the Lord. If you are not departing from sin, then you should be realistically concerned that though you name the name of the Lord, you're not truly following. You're not truly surrendering. You're not truly repenting. Now, let me say this about any of those three positions. The, the reaction of whether there is somebody that is concerned that somebody else has lost their salvation or there's concern that there are those that look like Christians that aren't Christians. Those are two different concerns, and the answer to both is clear gospel preaching and evangelism, right? Because if there are those that have fallen out of love with Jesus, though they were once truly saved, or if there are those that never fully got it enough, even though they looked like Christians on the outside, the answer for all of us is preach the gospel clearly, confidently, that Jesus will save. So let's go through these qualifications individually, and and this is how we'll spend um, some more of our time here today before we get to the end and this agricultural analogy. And let's just do me a favor. Let's just look at these as if point three is the correct interpretation, that these are apparent Christians, not true Christians that have fallen away, apparent Christians that have fallen away. And let's look at they who have once been enlightened in verse four. There are four descriptions here of these people in verses 4 and 5. They have once been enlightened, they have tasted the heavenly gift, they have shared in the Spirit, and they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. One thing I'll do quickly as we go through this, I want to give you a scriptural example of a person that I think fits each of these. Because I think, as I said, Scripture interprets Scripture, and Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. And I think in each of these we have examples, if we understand what these phrases mean, of people in the New Testament that reflected what the concern is of the author of Hebrews. What does it mean to be enlightened? It means to be exposed to the light. The gospel is often referred to as a darkness, as those that are in darkness receiving a great light. The Messiah comes to a people that are in darkness and he shines a great light. We are transferred from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of marvelous light. And so the light of Christianity, the light of the gospel shines on a person. And they might have some perception of the truth, an intellectual understanding that this way of life is better. This way of life is better than the Roman life, is better than the Jewish life. I like this Christian way. That's those that have been enlightened. They see the way of Jesus, the culture of the church, and there's something attractive there. There's something attractive because the early church valued women more than anyone else in the culture. Valued the poor more than anyone else in the culture. Valued slaves more than anyone else in the culture. That was the legacy of the early church. So there are some that probably for cultural reasons were enlightened and said, boy, Christianity sounds a lot better, sounds like a lot better news than Judaism or Roman paganism. And those were the people that liked the movement of Christianity, some of the ideals of Christianity, some of the philosophy of Christianity. 
but never truly met with the sacrifice of Christianity. Our kids last week studied two of these people as they were looking in their journey through the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They really liked so much of what the early church was doing. They even were generous. They loved the truth of Christianity. They wanted to be a part of things. They saw Barnabas sell a field and bring it to the elders. And they were like, we want to do that. We want to be generous. So what did Ananias and Sapphira do? They sold a field and they brought part of the money. They lied about it. They said, Peter, we sold the field for this much. Here's the money. We want it to serve the church because we want to be here. We want to be a part of the church. There had to be some draw, some enlightening, some interest in the gospel and in the church. And yet, they lied, and the Holy Spirit reveals it to Peter, and both husband and wife die on the spot out of judgment from God. Because they're lying not just to the people of God, but they're lying to the Holy Spirit to say they are obeying when they are not. That's the scary but true example of those that have once been enlightened. Now, there might be some of you saying, well, these, that sort of people probably doesn't exist in the world anymore, right? Because we sort of lost some of our cultural influence as a church. Why would anyone want to be in the church for the benefits of the church and like the philosophy of the church, but not really committed to the church? But I still think it exists. I think it existed more in previous generations where there were fake believers that were enjoying the life of the church and the benefit of the life of the church, but it still happens today. There are those in today's world that side with Christianity on issues and therefore claim the, the strengths of Christianity without the surrender, without the repentance, and without the fruit bearing. Public intellectuals are starting to say Christianity has a better system of beliefs. So there are atheists, uh, public intellectuals that are saying, actually, the system of beliefs propounded by Christianity propounded by the Gospels, that's a good way to live. Now, none of that stuff is true, but it orders society better. And there's this movement among public intellectuals to give this assent to the way of Christianity, the sacrifice, the grace, the love, and the service of Christianity without the truth claims of Christianity. That's happening today. That's an example of those that have been enlightened and will say, I like the Christian truth this much but let's not talk about the dying on cross and raising again for my sin. Second, they've tasted the heavenly gift. Uh, this is probably a reference to what we'll do today. At least it could be a, par a partial reference to the Lord's table. That these people have probably been in the church enough to receive communion, to receive the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. It also is consistent with the previous chapter of those who have... Um, who should be eating in the church but are not eating solid food. They're eating milk because their tastes have not developed. This, we, we sang about it today. I've tested and tasted your grace. We sang that line today. And these are the people that are still testing and tasting and not going deep enough in. These are, these are the buffet line people that can't make a decision of what they want. So they're, they're going to not choose a restaurant. They're based on, I want, I'm craving this type of food, but I'm going to go to the buffet, and you know Americans love buffets, right? We all love buffets. And I want to get a little bit of, of Italian food and a little bit of Mexican food and a little bit of Chinese food and a little bit of just you know, good country food, and I'm going to try it all because I don't really know what I want. And you can taste lots of different religions, lots of different ways of life, 
You could take a toe in to the way of Jesus, but without actually surrendering, committing. John 6, 66, one of the most memorable verses in Scripture because of the number, John 6, 66, says that there are disciples that were following Jesus that walk away from him. But the context is they just tasted the heavenly gift. These are people that were there at the feeding of the 5,000. They literally tasted this miraculous bread and fish that Jesus had produced. So they, they tasted the heavenly gift literally. They saw the power of heaven right in front of their eyes, and their stomachs were filled by it. And yet the way of Jesus was not quite enough what they wanted, so they walked away. I remember the man who sat in my office years ago and said, I think this is the church for me. This is the only good church in town. Guys, I'm going to tell you, that's a red flag. It's a little scary. I said, I know some people at other churches in town. There's, I think there's, some, there's multiple good churches in town. He said, no, no, no. Trust me. This is the only good church in town because this church has this thing wrong and this church has this thing wrong and this church has this thing wrong and this church has this thing wrong. And I'm going to tell you, if you can find something wrong with every other church and every other believer you ever interact with, then you're never, ever going to be satisfied with the Christian community you actually engage with. You're never going to actually engage in Christian community. And in, in that one conversation, I knew he's going to find something about me. I mean, I could probably give him a few things, you know? I know myself, right? There's got to be something about me he's not going to like eventually. There's got to be something about our church he's not going to like eventually if no other Christians in this community are good enough for him. Sometimes we're tasting and tasting and tasting without actually going in. And when we taste, taste, taste without going in, all we're going to find is problems. And we're going to find reasons to escape and leave eventually. They shared in the Holy Spirit. This is a hard one. If somebody had the power of the Holy Spirit, the working of the Holy Spirit, this, they've got to be true believers, right? They've Surely, these are real Christians. Absolutely not. This is actually one of the easiest ones to answer from Scripture. Because of what Jesus says in Matthew 7. There will be those at the end of the age that say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? And Jesus says, no. Prophecy and miracles don't prove genuine faith. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you can speak in the tongue of angels. You can speak in tongues. But without love, you're nothing. Without the love of Christ working through you, that's not a demonstration of true salvation. Simon the magician in Acts 8 is a clear example. He saw the beauty of the Spirit of God falling on people, so he tried to access it via money. And they said, you need to get out of here, man. This, you are not one of us. So we see these examples. We have Ananias and Sapphira, the disciples in John 6, Simon Magus, at, at demonstrations of all of these. The last one, they tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. This is someone who enjoys listening to the word and sees some evidence of the working of, of miracles or sees some of the benefit, the beauty of the coming kingdom. And multiple commentators, and this is a passage that I had never noticed before, but multiple commentators part, pointed to Mark 6.20 for this in a way that even really surprised me. But in Mark 6.20, we're told that even King Herod loved to listen to John the Baptist, learned from John the Baptist, protected John the Baptist. That's what Mark 6.20 says. 
And he gladly heard from John the Baptist until he killed him. That's the story of Herod and John the Baptist. He wanted to hear. He wanted to listen. He tasted the goodness of the words that God spoke through John the Baptist. He saw the movement building at the Jordan River. He protected him against the Romans. And then a woman pleased him and said, you can have whatever you want. And he brought John the Baptist's head on a platter to her. And so he was tasting the goodness for sure, but he surely was not surrendering. So the next question, if, if these are the descriptions of these people, and, and we've seen they don't necessarily have to be believers, they're just those that look like believers or look like good church people, why can't they be restored? It's because they think, I've already done that, and I've outgrown it. They were once a part of the church, and then they look back and they're deliberately turning away. It's not just disinterest in God. It's contempt. It's re-crucifixion. It's those that once believed, once were dependent on Jesus for salvation, and then are re-crucifying Him. Their willful sin is contemptuous. It's not somebody that, through the cares and concerns of this life, has started to doubt and started to have questions and are humbly trying to seek out answers to those questions. This is the person that has said, I was taught this, but it was wrong, and now I hate it. And I'm going to work against it. And Jesus Christ did die for nothing because I didn't have sins that needed to be atoned for. That's the, the picture of this person. This is a scary picture because does this picture tell us that once somebody is outwardly a Christian, a Christian in appearance, and then falls away and rejects the faith they once seemed to have, does this passage tell us that they can't be restored? that they can't ever find repentance again. Here's what I think that part of it means. I think that as long as someone is openly blasphemy and re-crucifying Jesus on the cross, by saying the cross means nothing, actively working against the case of the gospel, that person's not going to be restored as long as they progress in that state. That's certainly what that means. But is it impossible to restore to repentance ever once they leave that state, once they've recognized that they have made an error in the way they once lived, once they've recognized they rejected the Father's love, but the Father's house was better than the house they chose for themselves, they recognize that all of my walking and wandering, that the way I was given in my Father's house was so much better from the beginning. I think you know the answer to that story because you know the story of the one that did that. The prodigal son is the answer to this question. Yes, Scripture, Hebrews 6, does say that those that are openly blaspheming and rejecting the salvation that is offered to them in Jesus can't be restored to repentance. But the prodigal son was that person until he wasn't. And if we were to hear state that once a child is raised in a Christian family, and they reject the salvation that their parents lovingly taught them, and so many people served them by preaching the gospel faithfully. Once that per child walks away, that person can't be restored. That would be a devastating message for many of us. Probably a devastating message for all of us. Because we all love someone that's in that in-between. 
that has tasted the heavenly gift, that has been presented the gospel through a loving family and a loving church and given some level of belief and assent and maybe signed a card or prayed a prayer and maybe even exhibited some level of fruit, but now that person's not walking with Christ. And it's evident. And it would be so debilitating if we were to say, well, Hebrews 6 says we should just give up on them because they tasted and they rejected and so now we give up on them. The prodigal son's story tells us that there are those who grow up in the father's house and see the extravagant love of the father and dine at the father's table. They taste the goodness of all of the ways of the father and yet they think, I've never tried it on my own. I've got to try it on my own. Maybe my own way is good too. And so you walk away and you treat your father as if he is dead. That's what the prodigal son does. You don't ask, you try it. You go ask your dad for inheritance before he dies. See how he reacts. That, that question is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead now, but since you're not, go ahead and give me the money as if you're dead. That's what that story that we've heard so many times about the prodigal son, that's what the son is saying. I wish you were dead already, but I'm going to go ahead and act like you are. It is, it is full Full rejection. He's not sending postcards from all of the cool places he's going. He's not showing any, any love for the Father in all of the things that he's doing. And everything blows up in his face. And he recognizes while he's eating pig slop. I miss my dad. I miss the standing I had in a loving household where I was provided for and I was unconditionally loved. And he comes back. The warning of Hebrews is strong and harsh and true. But the picture of the extravagant father and the prodigal son is also true. We should be concerned if we are those people who are outwardly living the good Christian life and inwardly not convicted of our sin, not convicted of a desire to grow, to know Christ more, to study his word or anything, we should be concerned if that's us because we may not truly be in the faith. We should all be asking ourselves that question. But if we ever get to the point where we recognize that is me, I tasted and I rejected, the Father's table is always open. But while you live in rejection, while you live in blasphemy, and while you live in hatred of the Father, wishing the Father were dead, there's no repentance there. There's no restoration there. The field in verse 7 and 8 give us a really simple picture. There are fields that produce, and there are fields that don't produce. That's why you have to read this in conjunction with the parable of the sower and the soils. Matthew 13, Luke 8. They give you the beauty of these images. But as we prepare for the Lord's table, I want to say a couple more things about the words that we sing on a Sunday morning. I told you this morning we sang that I've tested and tasted your grace. May we not be those that are still testing and tasting without actually joining in. We also said, the one who saved will not forsake. And I listened to those words and I thought, if I believed that I could lose my salvation by my disobedience, I could not sing those words. But because I sang in boldness, the one who saved will not forsake. I believe it. 
And I believe it for each of you that as we come to the table, you can know that if you have believed in the gospel and you have received the gift of salvation through Jesus, the Son, then this table is for you. This morning we'll sing, we'll, we'll sing in a few minutes that the love of Christ has resurrected me. And in that song we will proclaim not just a temporary standing where we were once dead and now we're a little bit alive but we could die again. We're going to proclaim and sing an eternal standing. So I'm going to ask the team to come forward on the stage. I'm going to ask the, those that are serving communion, you make your way forward, and I'm going to issue another challenge to you. To all of you listening, either here or at home, two questions, two applications. Are you in the group who is giving mental assent, yeah, Jesus is real, yeah, Jesus is this really nice guy to follow, yeah, the Christian way is good and comfortable and I like it, if you are that person, then before you receive the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Jesus, then you need to repent for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can be regenerated, given new life in Jesus. Because outwardly identifying as a Christian will get you nowhere. It will get you a seat in this room. It might get you some acclaim from people. It doesn't get you anything before the throne of God. Repent and believe. Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sin. But the second application for you, if you have been saved, celebrate it. Rejoice in it. Because you're going to fall short and you're going to sin again, and the devil's going to come and accuse you and say, you messed up. How could you? Clearly God doesn't love you. Clearly you don't love him. But when the, when the enemy comes and says that to you, you proclaim, the body of Christ has been broken for me. The blood of Christ has been shed for me. And so I'm going to keep living in bold assurance. Keep living in confidence that nothing in this world can separate me from the love of Christ. And I'll give you a third application too. I said there'd be two, but I'll give you one more. If you love someone that is in that in-between, that they knew the truth, and they have rejected the truth, and they have not yet come back, never, ever lose heart. Never give up in praying. Never give up in loving and in serving. Because God is extravagant in his love for those that walk away. I'm going to pray for us as we prepare ourselves, our hearts and our minds for this table. Father, we're here today in desperate dependence knowing that we have no good apart from you, knowing that our ways have ended in sin and destruction, and the ways that have seemed right to us have led us in nothing but destruction. But we're here today recognizing that your perfect life lived in Jesus, and his perfect death for us has granted a new righteousness to us. So Father, may every heart glory in that message. May those who are not with you repent today and join the family today by the rebirth of the Holy Spirit. And may those who are with you walk out of this room with more confidence than they've ever had in their Christian life, knowing that you love us and you will never stop loving us.
So as we receive the elements, may we receive grace in your name and power. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.